Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Dear God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. The first scripture lessons from the Old Testament book of Psalms, chapter 19, verses one through 10. Listen for the word of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voices is not heard. Yet their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has set a tent in the sun, for which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decree of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they, are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel of John. We are in the second chapter early in John's account. We are in chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. This is Jesus cleansing the temple or turning over the tables. I invite you to listen again with fresh ears. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove out all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, The temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 1894, there was an epic baseball game played. The Baltimore Orioles traveled to Boston to play the Boston Bean Eaters. Yes, the Boston Bean Eaters. Bean Town, I guess some kind of correlation there. So the game is progressing when Tommy Foghorn Tucker slides into third base. John McGraw, as he slides into base, John McGraw, the third baseman, kicks him in the face. Boom! Kicks him in the face. So Tommy Foghorn Tucker gets up, and they go at it. Bam, 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 bam. Of course, we all know what happens when two or more are gathered in a fight. Everybody else, bench is clear. The field is awash with a brawl. But the brawl doesn't stop there. It goes into the stands so that then a good portion of the stands and all the fans then erupts into a fight and a brawl as well. But it doesn't just end there. Somebody then lights the stands on fire. The venue, the ballpark, the stadium burns completely down. But it didn't just end there. From there, over 107 buildings surrounding the stadium were affected. That's kind of dumb, isn't it? Anger. Anger. Those two guys at the, at the bag on that third base slide made some poor decisions that then sent shockwaves throughout the community, the park, and literally the neighborhood and the town of Boston itself. Anger is one of those things that we have a hard time with. We're not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but here today in John's account, Jesus is angry. So let's take a step back and let's look at this in context and see what's going on. So we're in the Gospel of John. And as we know, the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are called the synoptic Gospels because they are like one another. A synonym, using that same base word, is a word that is like other words. And so the synoptic Gospels are more like each other, more closely related, those three. And then John is kind of floating out here. We're in John today. And we are just in the beginning, chapter 2. Chapter 2, so almost nothing yet has happened. So far in John, you have the wonderful opening prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, and then all of that that continues to establish Jesus as the Word of God. And then right away, Jesus calls those first disciples. And it makes sense in John's Gospel, a little more clear to me than in the others, that they would just drop their nets and follow because they were already disciples of John the Baptist. And when Jesus comes to call them, John is right there, John the Baptist. And he said, that's the one. That's the one I was telling you about, the Lamb of God 
go with him. And so they go and they follow. And then chapter two starts right away with the wedding of Cana, right? And that kind of fun interplay with Jesus and his mom, Mary. They're at the wedding, they run out of wine. Mary says, go do something about this. And Jesus says, mom, stop talking to me in front of my friends. It's not my time, woman, leave me alone. And Mary says, Jesus, do it because I said so. Now, Jesus was the son of God, but he was also the son of Mary on earth and had to live there. So Jesus goes, okay, turns the water to wine, the first miracle in John. For the disciples to see. That wasn't a big public uh, uh, venue where people saw, but for the disciples, they saw that first miracle and started to see that something was going on with this Jesus character. So then right away we get to our passage today, Jesus entering the temple and turning over the tables. So why was Jesus in Jerusalem? It was Passover. There are three traveling Jewish holidays. Passover was one of them. Passover reclaiming and celebrating and remembering the action of when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. Moses, let my people go. The whole thing, let them out through the Red Sea into the wilderness for years. That exodus from Egypt is to be told and relived every year. Wherever you are, if you are of the Jewish faith or history or heritage, you were to come to Jerusalem to celebrate that Passover. So the place is crowded and they are in the temple. So what's the deal with the temple? At this point, well, remember there have been two temples. The first, Solomon, built in around 950 B.C., and then Nebuchadnezzar burned it to the ground when the Babylonians came in 586, 587. And then it was rebuilt about 516 B.C. And then in and out as different people occupied Jerusalem, they didn't burn it down from that point, but may have taken it over and desecrated it. But the second temple remained until Jesus' time. And Herod the Great, who was the Jewish king at the time of Jesus, expands the second temple in an effort to buy off his people because they knew he was a Roman pawn, a Roman puppet. The reason he was able to keep his Jewish crown was because he did whatever the Romans wanted him to do. And they allowed him to stay so they could control, manipulate him. The Jewish people knew that. And so Herod's trying to do something to show that he is a good ruler, and he does. He expands the second temple to make it beautiful, some 35 acres, makes it luxurious. And so it is in this setting that Jesus and his disciples come in for Passover. And so two things are required of you. If you are a Jew going to the Passover feast, one is that you pay your temple tax, and two, you make your animal sacrifice to atone for your sins. This is the predecessor to Jesus on the cross dying for our sins and putting an end to this temple sacrifice system. But so far, it is the way God set it up and said, do this. That's what priests would do in that day. Jewish priests, they would intervene for the people using animals to atone for their sins. So everybody had to have something. If you were pretty good, probably a couple of doves might do you. 
If you were exceedingly sinful and bad, then you, you might need a whole cow or an ox. But, but the, the tricky part that comes into play is that they had to be healthy animals. They had to be blemish-free. They couldn't be beaten up. They had to be well-fed. They had to be groomed and, and pretty, just as we talk about Jesus as the lamb, that, that blemish-free lamb that will come to the sacrifice soon enough. It is the same thing here. So think about travel in those days. Difficult, right? We can't throw them in the trunk and head to the temple. No, they would have been beaten around, these animals, if they were in cages, if they were birds. Other animals they had to keep clean if they were able to walk. So they're kind of sprung up an entrepreneurial enterprise, which is there would be vendors at the temple that would sell sacrificial animals. Sure, why not? So that when you get there, you know that your sacrificial animal is there and you can purchase it. You don't have to worry about the stress of keeping your animal to an acceptable degree. Or if you try that and the pre, you get there and the priest says, no, 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 that is beaten up a little bit, not as healthy as we would like to see. That will not do. You'd have to buy a new animal anyway. So you had these two issues that were then set up within the temple grounds. One, money changing, and there's nothing wrong with money changing. As a matter of fact, it is in line with, with the second commandment, no graven images. They would have been coming from other places. If they had Roman or foreign money, they would have had other rulers. Head, Caesar's head would have been on the money. You can't give that at temple. That is against God's law. Okay, so money changing is not in and of itself a bad or negative thing. It had to be done. You had to change that for temple currency, which was one that did not have graven images on it. That would be acceptable for the temple tax. So what's Jesus's issue? What is going on that caused him to do what he did? Well, in those two things, number one, those two things are necessary for the sacrifices and that temple tax, but it's not necessary that they be inside the temple grounds. And number two, there was exploitation involved. Jesus was standing up for all those people who could not stand up for themselves because both their Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership were all in cahoots together. You know, if you've ever traveled overseas and you, you step up to that kiosk to, to switch out your money, you're trying to do your calculation, you're trying to figure out, but in the end, you just don't know if they're going to take you or not. What's the exchange rate? Well, I don't like it. Okay, <laughs> no money for you. We're kind of at that mercy there, but much worse then. Because it wasn't just, are you getting a good rate? They knew they were being taken advantage of. It was a stream of revenue for the temple and those tax collectors. That's why they were despised so, one of the reasons. And then these animals, imagine the scene, people coming into Passover to come to temple if they live elsewhere once a year or one of their three times a year, and it is filled with animals, wall to wall, all these different, all these different vendors with different money changing and all the animals all over the place, chaotic environment, would be as you construct in your mind, four walls, kind of a courtyard, and just almost chaos. And this is where Jesus becomes angry. 
And it's problematic because this, this is not our lovely, compassionate, happy Jesus that we hold hands with and skip into the sunset in a field of marigolds and daffodils. This is a Jesus that gets angry and more than just strong words, he turns over the table. That is a violent action. Well, wait, I, I didn't think Jesus could sin. Isn't anger a sin in and of itself? If Jesus got angry, then how? Well, I think anger is not a sin in and of itself. Unless it is taken to the degree of which you are harming others or yourself, when anger becomes aggression or violence. And you could still argue that when Jesus turned over the table, that was a violent act. Now, he did not do that to harm anyone else, but to make a point. Why have you turned my father's house into a marketplace? This should be a place, paraphrasing, where people can come and worship and make their offerings and sacrifices to God to reconnect with their God. Instead, it's like a petting zoo gone wrong. And they have taken the laws that God set out and they have started to stand on these wooden laws. The laws were put into place in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Leviticus, all those early books, Deuteronomy, to establish how to be God's people. God set out those laws. But it wasn't for the sake of having laws. It was for the sake of building relationship. And when the leadership of the temple, Pharisees, scribes, all those, the chief priests that Jesus will continue to bump heads with, it is because they have forgotten the relationship portion. They have drowned out the spirit and they are standing on this wooden frame of law that doesn't necessarily in and of itself promote their relationship with God. So Jesus gets mad. He gets angry. And he takes a whip, takes a, takes a rope or something of the like, and starts to drive the animals, these sacrificial animals, out. Imagine the scene. What are you doing? And then turning over the tables, money everywhere. It would have been chaos. And think about those, because again, we are in the temple grounds. What if I got so mad at you, First Presbyterian Church, that I come down, I cannot believe it, and I take your sacred table, and boom! Right in front of you. Now, several things may have gone through your mind. One, if he turns over the table, will it damage the table? Is it going to hurt the floor? There's fire. What will that do? And the other may be, uh, let's put the search committee back together. <laughs> I don't think this guy's going to work out. At the 845 service in the chapel, little Preston Christian, I said, what was going through your mind? It, his hand shot up, and I said, what, what, Preston? He said, number one, he wasn't sure I was strong enough to push the table over. <laughs> it might be time to head back to the gym. 
Secondly, he said, grape juice everywhere. They had communion in there this morning, so the elements were on the table. And in essence, he's right. It would have been a mess. Would have taken their temple tables. Imagine how you feel for just a split second. Is he going to do it? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Except Jesus did it and would have insulted everybody involved with the process. So then again, what about anger? Anger in and of itself, I don't see as a negative thing. Until or unless it reaches the point of destruction for yourself and for others. Sigmund Freud, yes, of the tell me about your mother, also had a theory about depression. And he said depression is anger turned inward. Depression is anger turned inward. And his theory was that nice people who don't ever show anger are more susceptible to depression because they, they don't have a healthy outlet for their anger. That makes some sense. It's okay to be angry if it's for constructive purposes or you have some control over your anger. In this country, we have taken a bad road. We have allowed ourselves to be manipulated to the point where whatever it is we are on our side of, that person on the other side we are angry at and we demonize them and they are not like us, they don't read scripture like us, so they are wrong and they are bad. And it's not just faith. It's at the PTA, if that one treasurer won't come in line with what the rest of us want to do, it's at your business, it's in your family. What do you mean we're not going to do this? How can you think that? Anger has divided our nation, and it is sad, and we are eating ourselves from the inside out. You look at the national media scene on all sides, left and right. You look at the political scene on left, on right. And people are making a living off of pitting us against one another. We choose sides. They hand out jerseys. If you believe this on this policy, you're on this team, and you have to hate the other team. We are destroying ourselves. This whole election business, you know who's profiting the most and benefiting the most? Vladimir. Vladimir Putin. He wasn't for Hillary. He wasn't for Trump, in my humble opinion. He was for creating chaos in this country, and we have sopped it up like gravy on a biscuit. We have allowed him, through other outlets, for us to say that we are right on our side and the other side is wrong and there is no middle ground. We are to be better than that as servants of Christ. We are to find those tables that are worthy of being turned over and to stand up and say, you may be on the other side, but I need your help. We can do this together. Example, the awful shooting at Douglas High School. Tragic, awful, horrible. Remove for the second, for the time being, the politics of it, 
wherever you stand on gun control, wherever you stand on mental illness, wherever you stand on where the administration was and those who were there that didn't and the setup and the, all of that, I, I know it's hard because we're already, we're on our sides and we're ingrained. But what has been exciting to me is to see the youth, to see them turn over this table and say, this is enough. Nobody should go through what we just have been through. And we're not sure how to do it, but we are standing up and we are participating in this country's system, in this government. We are claiming our voices that we've not necessarily had before because this cannot continue. I think we would all agree that this cannot and should not continue. We just differ on how to get there and what that looks like. The big picture of this turning over the tables, I believe, is that we often have profaned the holy. Jesus comes into the temple, and it's not so much the individual small acts, but what it has done to the church, to the temple, to God's house. And it has profaned the holy. As we look in our lives, especially in this Lenten journey where it is an inward focus for how we can identify and start to work on things that get in the way of our walk with Christ, what is the holy that we have profaned? Our relationships are holy gifts. What do we need to do to be better spouses, parents, children, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers, pastors, Our life is full of holy and sacred gifts from God. But often we have let culture, we have let other things, our own sin, or it is beyond our control. But things have been affected. This Lenten journey is about trying to identify what could be more holy, what could be more faithful, and then we start to remove those things that have damaged these relationships that have profaned the holy. Our church is a big part of that. There's always a part of this passage where we've got to look at who we are. And this passage isn't saying don't have a bake sale, don't have a youth fundraiser, don't collect money for Global Missions Week. It is bigger than those small things. The bigger question for our church is, is this still a holy space? And how do we make it more holy and welcoming and inviting and faithful so that others can come here and worship and be led by our risen Christ, our God of love, who seeks to walk with us in this journey? Anger is not bad in and of itself. Anger and stress, when taken to extremes, can take us over, and you don't want that. I share with you a, a personal experience. This morning, I came into work, checked my box. There was a card from a youth that I haven't had contact with from when I lived in Raleigh over 10, 12 years ago. I was the youth minister there. No contact. I get this note in the mail. Dear Danny, you probably remember me as the ill-behaved youngest of the Jones siblings at White Memorial. I'd like to think that I'm a little better behaved now 
and currently at my first year at Columbia's Theological Seminary. What? This year for Lent, and listen to this, a wonderful discipline. This year for Lent, I decided to take time every day to give thanks to people whom God put in my life that encouraged, challenged, and... and walk with me where I was and got me today. See, a little choked up. It's very sweet. And, and on and on. And I don't share that with you to tell you how great I am, although we could sit in the moment and just enjoy it. But, but it's, it's, it's this line, it's this line here. He says, I am even grateful for the time you kicked me and Carter Robinson out of Monday night Bible study. We both needed it. I remember that night. Five years I was there, Monday night Bible study with the youth every Monday night. I remember maybe a handful of them, and this is one. Why? Because I was angry. These were these two young middle school boys. They would not stop distracting and talking and playing. And I became angry. Not to the point of violence. Not to the point of some unhealthy explosion. I don't talk to my family about that, by the way. But in this case, they they were impeding our ability to study. We could not focus. And so I kicked them out. And now, Lucas, this wonderful young man, as was Carter, his friend, have grown into these wonderful young adults that I am blessed to be associated with. But the point was, my anger, and and I remember being worried about it. Oh, did I embarrass them? Was that the wrong? Are they ever going to come back again? Did I do the right thing? Did I not? Lucas says, yes, you did the right thing. In that case, anger worked. I didn't know it then. I didn't know it for the next 12 years. Again, Directed anger, as what Jesus did, can have positive effect, but not to the point of being aggressive, violent, or destroying others. So our call today is to look at this Lenten journey. We're halfway there, friends, in our six-week journey to the cross with Jesus. Turning over the table is a great image for our Lenten journey. Because it means that we identify things that need to change and we take a stand. Maybe you start with a bedside table that's a little smaller and you push that over. The point is you start working, identifying, and taking the courageous steps to make a difference. It starts in our hearts, in our homes, in our families, in our communities, absolutely in our church. And then that spreads to the world because there is too much out there that is unacceptable. And it is our call, as Jesus does here, speaks and stands up for those Jews who could not stand up or speak for themselves and turns over the table. New sheriff in town, Jesus says, I'm challenging your order and your structure because it has gone awry. So let this Lenten journey be our time to look and identify what should be more holy that is not in our lives that we have allowed to be profane. And thus let us in our own way stand up, turn that table, 
and make a difference and make a stand for ourselves and for others. This is our Christian call. Hallelujah. Amen.